Hello, and welcome back to A Place for Film, the official IU Cinema podcast. I am your co-host, David Carter, and not joining me this week is my lovely co-host, Elizabeth Rowe. That is because this week uh, I have another special presentation for you. This uh, is the virtual monthly movie roundup that we did uh, as our last uh, virtual event at the IU Cinema. Uh, This was something in which all of the bloggers got together and we uh, did essentially what is a virtual version of the monthly movie roundup which is a feature in which all of us uh well most of us anyway uh go through and uh write up a short thing about something in particular that we watched this month that we want to bring to the public uh and this was a ton of fun uh this is the first time all of us have been kind of in the same room together oddly enough uh you know people's taste in movies at the IE Cinema differ and vary, so, you know, that there hasn't been one screening in which all of us have been together. Also, people's schedules are all different. But this was a blast. You get to hear from uh, a lot of past guests of the podcast. Everyone who's in the blog, who's on the blog, has been uh, on this podcast at some point or another. I would like to give a heads up about some of the trailer transitions. I did leave the audio intact, uh, and two of the contributors did pick movies that are not in English, but, you know, we played the trailers uh, at the roundup, so I decided it's just best just to keep them in as is, but you can admire the music in the, uh, you know, the music in the language that's being spoken, even if you don't have the subtitles there, but you can go and check out the trailers for these movies on YouTube. They're all easy to find in some capacity. Uh yeah i think that's gonna do it Uh, i wanted to keep this short we will hopefully be back next week with a pseudo normal episode the podcast is gonna undergo some changes i think in the the coming few weeks uh just to tighten it up and make it something that more people might be into listening you know people's ear space is uh (laughs) is valuable these days so i wanted to make the podcast something that was a little more compact even though me and Elizabeth very much do enjoy talking to our guests for these long 90-minute episodes. But yeah, please enjoy this. Uh, I hope we do it again sometime. I hope I can also bring you some aud- more audio versions of these uh, IU Cinema events that are virtual that don't necessarily get posted to the YouTube channel and that people seem to ask about quite a bit. So yeah, please enjoy, and we'll see you next week. Good night. Good evening and welcome to the Indiana University Cinema Virtual Screening Room. My name is Alyssa Brooks and I'm the Marketing and Programming Coordinator at IU Cinema. As always, we miss being with you all in person, but we're so glad to have you with us virtually tonight and we hope you and your loved ones are staying healthy and well. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that IU Cinema is built and operates on the ancestral lands of the indigenous people of the Miami, Potawatomi, Delaware, and Shawnee Nations. 
On behalf of the entire IU Cinema team, I'd like to thank you for joining us for our final interactive event of the year, the Monthly Movie Roundup Virtual Edition with our wonderful pub publications editor, Michaela Owens, and a place for film blog contributors, David Carter, Laura Ivins, Jack Miller, and Jesse Pasternak. We're so thrilled to have them all here tonight. So to start us off, I'll introduce Michaela Owens, who will then introduce our bloggers. As I mentioned, Michaela Owens is IU Cinema's publications editor. An IU graduate with a BA in communication and culture and an MA in cinema and media studies. She's also been a volunteer usher at IU Cinema since 2016. She never stops thinking about classic Hollywood, thanks to her mother's introduction to it. And she likes to believe she's an expert on Katherine Hepburn and Esther Williams. Please welcome Michaela Owens. Hello, thank you, Alyssa. Uh, and thank you to everyone watching for joining us this evening. Uh, the monthly movie roundup, if you're not familiar with it, is a feature on our blog where each regular contributor selects a film that they watched that particular month that they want to recommend. Uh, it was an idea that came from one of our original contributors. Uh, and it's been really fun every month to find out what everyone's been watching and to learn about films I personally have never heard of. So it's exciting to share this written feature as a virtual event. Um, I also believe that this is the first time all of our lovely bloggers have ever been together in one place. And so you'll be witnessing a historic event tonight. So David Carter is a co-founder of Cicada Cinema and co-host and producer of A Place for Film, the IU Cinema podcast, which I highly recommend and not just because I was a recent guest on there. David's love of film ranges from Speed Racer to The Holy Mountain to Do the Right Thing to everything far away and in between. Laura Ivins loves stop motion, home movies, and perfect films, nature hikes, and Stephen Crane's poetry. She has a PhD from IU and an MFA from Boston University. Laura is also the wonderful brain behind all of the excellent video essays the blog has published over the years, including a new one that is coming out tomorrow, so keep an eye out for that. Jack Miller enjoys the films of Howard Hawks, Jacques Tourneur, and John Ford. He graduated from IU with a BA in English and currently resides in Chicago. Jack also recently organized and edited an online volume of criticism called Riding the Dusty Trail, a dossier on the 50s Western, which Laura and I both happily contributed to. Uh, you can find it at writingthedustytrail.wordpress.com. And finally, we have Jesse Pasternak. He's a graduate of IU, where he was co-president of the Indiana Student Cinema Guild. He also wrote about film, television, and pop culture for the Indiana Daily Student. An aspiring professional writer-director, his own film work has appeared at Campus Movie Fest and the anthology Film Archives in New York City. Uh, Jesse is also our resident Paddington expert, and it was his review of Paddington 2 for a previous roundup. Uh, that finally pushed me to check the film out. So I am forever indebted to him for bringing more Hugh Grant into my life. <laughs> Thank you, my pleasure. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi. <laughs> uh, I was going to try and place these selected films uh, in an order that maybe had similar themes or some kind of thread to give this a nice flow. Um, but then I got all of your picks and <laughs> That idea just went out the window, <laughs> which is great because it really shows how eclectic all of our tastes are and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. 
so we're just going to do this in reverse chronological order, uh, which means that up first, we're going to show the trailer for David's Choice, Catherine, he Catherine Hepburn's. Oh, you see where my oh, mind is? I want to see Catherine Hepburn's version of this movie. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Uh, no, it's Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days. Have you ever jacked in? Have you ever wired tripped? You ready? Oh, no. oh. Oh. <laughs> this is not like TV only better. This is life. It's a piece of somebody's life. It's about the stuff that you can't have, right? The forbidden fruit, straight from the cerebral cortex. I mean, you're there, you're doing it, you're feeling it. Are you beginning to see the possibilities here? I am your main connection to the switchboard of souls. I'm the magic man. But this guy's something to do with the wire. Sooner or later, it washes up on your beach. Fan mail from some flounder. It's the dark end of the street. How do you like it now? He records it all. Everything. And gives it to you. Why me? There's more to this whole thing than you think. Give us the tape right now! You don't know how high up the food chain this thing goes. Do you know what this tape could do if it got out? I see the world opening up and swallowing us all. This is conspiracy paranoia. The issue isn't whether you're paranoid, Lenin. The issue is whether you're paranoid enough. No more games. Whatever's going on, you have to get out of here now. Get him out. This tape is a lightning bolt from God. It can change things, things that need changing before we all go off the end of the road. It'll be an all-out war, and you know it. No! Well, maybe it's time for a war. Come on, man, cheer up. World's gonna end in 10 minutes anyway. Catherine Hepburn directed that. Crazy. <laughs> 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 okay, David, tell us why you picked Strange Days. I picked Catherine Bigelow's Strange Days because one, this year marks the 25th anniversary of the film. It came out in 1995. Uh, I also picked it because this is a wildly underseen and underrated movie of multiple film genres. It's an underrated piece of cyberpunk. It's an underrated piece of neo-noir. Uh, I, I just think that it's uh, one of the more prescient films that we somehow, somehow hasn't been brought more into the conversation this year. Uh, I mean, things feel pretty apocalyptic at this point. Uh, I also brought it because it is a New Year's Eve movie. So it's kind of, uh, it's kind of you know, in the holiday a little bit. 
also happy birthday to Jesse Pasternak a few weeks from now because he's a New Year's Eve baby apparently. Uh, but yeah, I brought this film uh, because I think it's it's honestly remarkable. Uh, Catherine Bigelow, uh, who you, who most people probably know from her work on the movie Point Break, uh, and if not Point Break, her more recent work, uh, her more militaristic works with like The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty and Detroit, which is wild to think about. The director that made Detroit also made this movie. Uh, <laughs> doesn't seem like the same person, but uh, I think she's her early work uh, in the 80s and 90s, her more impressionistic, more genre-based works are just incredible and it uh you know she made a movie called the loveless with willem dafoe a vampire movie called near dark a movie with jamie lee curtis uh called blue steel and it all kind of kept building and building and building into you get to this movie which is a collaboration with her ex-husband and producer james cameron uh which is this movie that was in concept just about the more cyberpunk thing of like jacking in and like escaping and things like that and then the rodney king riots happened and Catherine took it upon herself to make the movie more within the now. Although I don't know if she knew that things would get worse uh, and that she essentially kind of started predicting the future because this movie is while about so many things I can't really get into in the time I'm given. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a body cam movie. It's about, pe it's about people photographing these acts of violence against people and relaying to, to other people while also it's a movie about escapism and people essentially uh, living vicariously through other people, which is obviously what social media is. It's about parasocial relationships. It's, I don't know, it's incredible. And as far as like cyberpunk cinema is concerned, like really the, it's the most successful piece besides maybe Blade Runner, Ghost in the Shell and The Matrix. Uh, not that all cyberpunk cinema is bad by any stretch of the imagination, but as far as like, you know, having like any sort of like trying to aim for a commercial, like a commercial audience, uh, this is an incredibly like fun and well-made movie to watch, but it's a movie that's like asking you to grapple with like a lot of questions. And that is why I decided to bring it this week. So I don't know if anybody has seen this movie or familiar with Catherine Bigelow's pre-Oscar or Hurt Locker movies at all. Um, this movie kind of essentially uh, doomed her to obscurity for a couple of years because she went on to make two kind of nothing movies that don't exist, K-19, The Widowmaker and The Weight of Water, and then she would make The Hurt Locker. So I wouldn't be surprised if people haven't seen this movie or movies before that. Are, are any, any of you guys Catherine Bigelow fans? I've just seen the, I, uh... like, the later prestigious stuff, but I wanted to ask you, do you think that like the concerns of these early genre pictures are like, the same as the later kind of Oscar fair? Like, do you see this as like very much the same filmmaker or is it just a total 180? It's almost a total 180. And I don't know if it's because of her collaboration. She has a collaborator, Mark Bowl, that's been on with her since The Hurt Locker. I don't know if that's so much him or if that is, she essentially made four movies, you know, five movies. Well, Point Break was a hit, but like she made like four movies that no one saw. This movie kind of tanked, it ruined her career. And so I could very much see her like making a movie like The Hurt Locker, which I actually think of her later period, like that's probably the best one, but just like, I could see her being like a, well, people come out and see this and they saw Zero Dark Thirty and granted Detroit wasn't a big success, but 
Yeah, it's a kind of a 180. It, I, I kind of wish that Catherine would come back a little bit. I'd like to see her dip her toes in genre again. I mean, she went to art school with Susan, where Susan Sontag taught her, like the lady's got bona fides. She's got ideas. She, just used, she also used to flip apartments with Philip Glass, which I just like telling people about. She used to flip apartments in the 70s in New York with Philip Glass. It's wild. Such a Imagine her tearing down drywall. Yeah. It's cute. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to take up too much time. I just think people should seek out this movie. If they can, uh, it's woefully out of print and unstreamable. It's a Fox movie, which means it's now owned by Disney, which is kind of funny because cyberpunk is about monocorporations taking over the world. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and I, I'm going to do this direct to camera. I'm gonna stream my shot. If Arrow, Shout, Criterion, Kino Lorber wants to, wants to bug Jimmy Cameron to put, make a Blu-ray of this, and maybe the abyss as well wants to make a blu-ray of this please do i think people should watch it also i'd like to write the essay anyway <laughs> david i'm curious um you're you're old enough to remember 2000 mm -hmm. uh, so this this movie like looks forward to no well it takes place in it... 1999 <laughs> okay I, yes. I'm, I'm curious what you think of like the futuristic aspects of it and whether you feel like it um I don't know, because it didn't look that much forward into the future, but there were some kind of like crazy millennial anxieties that happened yeah. over that next five years. And um, do you think the film like tapped into that in a way that ended up being prescient? Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, I think this was a spec script that James Cameron wrote, not spec script, like a proof of concept that he wrote in the 80s. So I could very much see him being like, and this will take place in the year 1999, which is, you know, so many years away, but didn't get made until 1995. But I think they wanted to, I think Catherine, what she brought to is she wanted to keep it grounded, which is why it doesn't look super duper futuristic. And, and the one piece of like futuristic technology in the movie is the main piece of technology, which is just this neural interface that allows people to record the experiences that they have. Uh, Ray Fiennes himself is a uh, ex-cop who now deals in selling these memories to people. It's like a drug for people. It's a way for them to like al allow them to live vicariously through other people's experiences. It's actually like a very a really good scene where this kind of broy businessman comes in and Ray Fiennes is like very good at reading people. And he uh, says, he's like trying to figure out what he's into. And he's like, you want to be with two women? Do you want to go skiing or whatever? Like, would you like to be a woman? And that kind of sparks the guy's interest. And mm -hmm. next scene you see him like being in the body inhabiting like a woman. It's like, you see like this bliss and like every, this like awakening come inside this like guy's head, like which you would never peg, peg him for. And uh, I definitely think it speaks to that for sure. It also I'm speaks to, <laughs> yeah. It's, it it also, really reminds me of like existence or something like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's very, like it, it is interesting how overlooked this movie is considering that it kind of predates a lot of like cyberpunk and sci-fi movies from like the late nineties and early aughts. Um, the, the other thing I find super interesting about it, which this past week has kind of put like into focus for me, is that there's this anxiety or nihilism about the late 20th century and how characters don't, don't believe that we can actually do anything new or create anything new. So they kind of keep fleeing into the past and trying their best to not improve any, like improve things. Like to them, they're like, everything's already been done. The next like thousand years is only gonna last like 10 years. And you 
see how that like causes society to kind of slowly decay because people don't want to move forward anyway. They want to be stuck in their little cocoons, which I, you know, it's hard. It's, it's, it's easy to see how people in one bad situation can want those things, but it, it is kind of indicative of where we are now a little bit of like, even with not even just within art and lots of other avenues, people don't really want to take chances and try new things, despite the fact that new things might actually help us out a lot more. So well, on that happy note. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right, so our next film, um, you might want to have a snack nearby. Uh, it is Laura's pick, Tampopo. So I have heard so much about this film, still have not seen it. Uh, so Laura, please tell us about Tampopo. Yeah, so, um, well, first, if that trailer intrigued you, it's available through uh, Criterion. So if you have, if you're a subscriber to the Criterion channel, you can just watch it immediately after this event. Um, one of the things that I think really fascinates me about the film is the, it's kind of got a fetishistic quality. Um, in that um, it's the, the filmmaker Itami Juso really explores all of the different relationships people can have to food. So um, there's these scenes that, you know, recall like surrealism, like you have um, this couple that's passing an egg yolk back and forth between their mouths and it's very erotic and it's very like Georges Bataille, the story of the eye kind of thing. Um, you have these, um, the way that the camera kind of moves through the narrative is reminiscent a bit of Bunuel's um, Phantom of Liberty, like the camera kind of will wander away from its character sometimes and just follow in itself, like kind of follow a character into like a new food um, 
journey and then there's like these like there's like an old lady that likes to like rub food like she smashes like the peach which I think was in the trailer just now and she like feels a bread and things like that um then it, it, it's also about like this um kind of like Japanese amateur culture which is really about like connoisseurship um, and um, enthusiasm. So, you know, we meet uh, a group of a group of connoisseurs who live on the street and they're um, experts in, um, you know, all of the different foods that the local restaurants um, put in their trash. That's kind of, they kind of, um, you know, do like kind of like punk scavenging of food and um, they have, but they have a very fine palate. So they know when they're using a machine to chop the cabbage instead of hand chopping it. And um, I don't know, it's just such a, it's such a delightful movie in all of the little sides and um, the characters are very charming. Um, yeah. This uh, the actually, cinema, the cinema played this. No, sorry, go ahead, Jesse. What were you gonna say? Oh, I was just gonna say that this was actually, I saw this for the first time for this event. It's like one of the best movies I've seen in a while. So I just wanted to thank you for uh, programming it. Definitely is the kind of movie that brings a smile to your face. Yeah. And yeah. one thing I wanted to ask you about it was I love the genre eclecticism related to it. Like it, there's a lot of Western references, but I always think of it as a sports movie, like in how they're training this woman to like be a better ramen chef. So I was wondering if that was something you responded to and what your favorite genre the film uses is. Oh, um, probably um, from what it like purposefully draws from is the gangster film. I am such a sucker for a gangster film. Um, but um, it, it does very intentionally draw from Westerns. So, um, and from um, kind of tangentially like the samurai film. So, you know, she puts together instead of her seven samurai, she's got like her five samurai. Um, the filmmaker Itami has referred to um, Goro, the guy that the truck driver that kind of comes in and, you know, reforms the restaurant. He's like Shane. Um, mm. But instead of, you know, setting the town right, he's setting the restaurant right. Um, there's some specific references to um, Grapes of Wrath um, and the John Ford film. And I'm trying to think of what else was a specific reference. But yeah, I, you do automatically think of Rocky. I didn't come across anything that would indicate that um, Itami was purposefully referencing Rocky. Um, what I read was that it was more of a reference to um, kind of like Japanese corporate like management culture of like the, um, uh, I wrote down the term, let's see. Well, I can't find it in my notes. I had too many notes. Um, but there's like this Japanese kind of management culture where you um, kind of physically, mentally and spiritually kind of like refine yourself and cultivate yourself. So like, um, you know, you've, you may have seen in other films like kind of funny like scenes of like executives going jogging together and that's part of like their management training um so itami was referencing that kind of culture um with the the physical training scenes but it, it does make you think of rocky doesn't it oh definitely yeah laura does this movie make you want to cook as much as it makes like I saw this at the cinema for the first time when it played the 4k restoration played there and all I wanted to do was go home and make ramen or omu rice or any of the many things in the movie does it inspire that in you oh yeah absolutely I mean doesn't don't you want to make like that that fried rice omelet that kid has it's oh, such so a beautiful good. omelet and he just like cuts it and just like 
goes over the rise so beautifully. Yeah, there's a lot of love. This was actually one of the first Japanese films to hire a food stylist. So that, that's pretty common now for films that have um, food figured prominently, but it used to be like in the props department. And uh, Itami like just really wanted to do a loving take on the food. So he hired a food stylist. She had a kitchen in the corner of the set. And apparently her kitchen was very popular. The cast and crew would just, anytime there was a break in filming, go try to eat some ramen or whatever it was she was cooking up for the film. They also did a lot of um, uh, screen tests for the ramen to like get the broth noodle ratio perfect. So they did like tons of test shots to make sure it looked tasty. Apparently more broth looks tastier than more noodles, so. Yeah, that person should win a Lifetime Achievement Award. I agree. At this point. Yeah, Criterion has a making of that shows the like ramen screen test that they did. So. Well, that's, now I'm super hungry. Thank you all. Um, all right, so uh, for our next selection, uh, we are going from Japan to France with Jack's pick, A Tale of Winter. Charles était perdu, tu vois, mais j'avais au moins un enfant de lui. C'est quand même normal qu'un enfant sache comment est son père. Oui, mais s'il a disparu. Mais il peut très bien réapparaître. Charles peut réapparaître d'un moment à l'autre. D'un moment à l'autre. Mais personne n'y croit. Que Charles réapparaisse ou non, c'est pas là l'essentiel. Il reste dans mon cœur et c'est pourquoi je ne peux donner mon cœur à personne d'autre. Tu sais pourquoi Parce que je t'aime. Passer pour vivre avec toi, mais... Il y a des tas de femmes qui aimeraient mieux vivre avec un autre homme que celui avec qui elles vivent. Mais il n'existe pas, c'est un rêve. Tu crois pas que je t'aime Ce n'est pas parce que j'étais follement amoureuse de Charles et que je suis très triste de quitter Loïc que je ne serais pas heureuse avec Maxence. Écoute, maman, il n'y a pas de bon ni de mauvais choix. Ce qu'il faut, c'est que la question du choix ne se pose pas. Comme ça traînait, je me suis fait des illusions. Bah, c'est fini, c'est mieux, c'est net. Je rentre à Paris. Lâche-moi ou je cogne Avec toi, je me sens bien. Mais différente. On s'est peut-être connus, nous aussi, dans une autre vie. Diriez-vous pas qu'elle respire et que ses veines roulent vraiment du sang De la magie Mais toutes les religions ont cru à la réincarnation. Si j'étais Dieu, je te chérirais tout particulièrement. Et pourquoi parce que tu as été malheureuse d'une façon très injuste et que tu es capable de, de sacrifier tout, ta vie, ton bonheur à, à un amour qui n'est même pas présent. Il faut pas pleurer. J'ai peur du jour. <rire> Think none of you like happy holiday movies. Uh, all right, Jack, why would you recommend this movie? Well, uh, because I find this movie deeply moving. Um, I watched it for the first time recently, and this is one of the later movies of, of Eric Romer, who's one of the great French New Wave filmmakers. And as you can probably gather from the trailer, um, this is a movie about a young woman who has this like amazing summer romance with like her dream guy and totally falls in love. And then when they're parting, she just through a complete mistake, like writes down the wrong address. And 
then the movie begins like five years later and she has a child that's hers and his and she's kind of dallying between these two other men one of whom is a hairdresser and one of whom is a librarian and both of these new guys like adore her but she is really she's you know she's unwilling to compromise and she as a heroine she kind of displays this like total refusal to compromise in love which is some, like one thing that interested interested me early on but she also kind of throughout the movie displays this unwavering belief that this man who she hasn't seen in over five years is going to return and she like haunts the places that she thinks she might run into him at and so what I found really, really fascinating about this movie when I watched it recently is that even though Romer's making this movie about secular romantic love, he oftentimes throughout the movie, he frames it as a question of faith. And there's even that brief scene in the trailer where uh, she mentions God, but really, you know, he's, he structures his movie like, like a Christian parable. Um, which is like a really strange, strange decision in making like a movie about, about love and sex. And uh, Romer, after I watched this movie, I was doing some more like reading about Romer and he was actually like always a Catholic filmmaker. And if any of you have seen his movie, The Green Ray, which is like one of his more famous films, um, that also uses this kind of like biblical structure in terms of like, about a young woman kind of like holding on to some semblance of faith, but also struggling with it at the same time. And so I found this really fascinating for like a number of reasons. Firstly, because, you know, when we think of the French New Wave, we don't typically think of like a traditional Catholic narrative structure. We, that's something that we might like associate with like classical Hollywood, but you know, I think that kind of makes Romer like the ultimate nonconformist in some ways. Like he's not gonna make Pierre Le Fou, he's not gonna make a Jean-Luc Godard movie. He's like so rigorous here. And I mean, he's also rigorous in terms of like the way he shoots this movie. He is like so attentive to the spaces of uh, the cities of Paris that he's shooting in. This is also the only movie of his that I've seen that deals with working class characters, um, which is a bit interesting. But there's also this amazing scene in the film where her and the librarian go to a stage production of Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale. And that's a play about this like dead queen who gets revived uh, because her late husband like had faith. And she like goes to this play. I think there was a clip of it in the trailer, but she goes to this play and she doesn't really care about Shakespeare or really know anything about it, but she's so deeply moved because, because she sees her own situation in, in this play. And um, I don't wanna give away anything about like how Romer ends up like resolving this narrative, but this scene where they go to see Shakespeare is like for me now, like one of the magic moments of movies, like it was, it's just so beautiful. So I love Romer and I hope you all check this one out. It's a it's a seasonal classic. Yeah, I'm not familiar with him really. Like I know him from um, Cahiers de Cinema and 
all that. So I was looking him up earlier, just on Wikipedia. And I was like, this guy sounds interesting. <laughs> just like the way that he wouldn't, um, he wouldn't do close-ups because that's not how like you look at people in real life. You don't like get right up there on people, I guess. <laughs> and just how he would like film according to the weather and he had to film things like whatever time it was in the movie was the time that they had to film it. So it's just really interesting. Yeah, it's almost like a Dogma 95. I, I'm glad you used the word rigor. That's such a perfect word to describe Romer. Yeah, he actually, I read that he spent more time on location scouting than any other new wave director. Like he was really, like Michaela said, he was like very attentive to the weather and like would make people wait and wait for the exact right time. Um, and yeah, like he did uh, write for Kaidu Cinema and a lot of his writing that he did for Kaidu Cinema was about the Italian filmmaker Roberto Rossellini, who if any of you have been following my recent blog posts, you know, I've been kind of obsessed with that filmmaker this year. Um, so there's some similarities there too, in terms of like documenting the natural earth and like also using uh, like a Christian structure. It's interesting that you mentioned this is like his only film without that, that focuses on working class characters. I'm wondering if you have a sense of like why um, it's so singular in his filmmaking, especially with the um, with his interest in in um, like you know Italian neorealism. Yeah, that is a good point. Um, I couldn't say. I mean, I think. I don't think that he's like among the new wave filmmakers, like one of the more supremely political, uh, that certainly like Godard is like more political, at least in an overt way. Um, so yeah, perhaps just because like his other movies aren't really about class, but um, it's something that I like here. And I think that is part of what makes this one very moving. Jack, would you say that this is a good jumping in movie? for Romer or would you as someone who owns a copy of Pauline at the beach but hasn't watched it yet but has wanted to explore Eric yeah. Romer like what what would you would you say this is a good jumping in point especially given the time of the year that we're in yeah I think this one's way better than Pauline at the beach to be frank I think like <laughs> uh I think this this one or the green ray the green ray is like uh just like one of my favorite movies but um this one is like tied up there too. And I picked, I ended up going with this one because it's like winter. Uh, but yeah, this one you could easily start with. This one I actually watched on Mubi. It's like part of their permanent library. So if any of you have Mubi, uh, that's where it is. All right, so next we have Jesse's pick and one of my personal favorites, uh, Billy Wilder's The Apartment. number one, a very warm, very wonderful story about a boy, a girl, and a very special kind of problem. Did you hear what I said, Miss Kubelik? I absolutely adore you. Shut up and deal. Ingredient number two, a brilliant cast. Jack Lemmon, 
in a delightful role which gives full reign to Jack's amazing versatility. Shirley MacLaine, whose glowing warmth lights up the screen like a Christmas tree. Fred McMurray, this is a Fred McMurray you've never seen before. You know, you see a girl a couple of times a week just for laughs, and right away, they think you're going to divorce your wife. <laughs> I ask you, is that, is that fair? No, sir, it's very unfair, especially to your wife. Yeah. Ingredient number three, Billy Wilder. There's nothing quite like that Billy Wilder, some like it hot kind of laughter. Are we dressing for dinner? You know, just come as you are. Say, so you're pretty good with that racket. You should see my backhand. Where'd you see me serve the meatballs? <laughs> Mildred, he's at it again. Can we just watch that now? Like, let's just forget get the rest of this like let's just just do it i think david and i were having the most fun during that trip. i was losing my mind i love this is like that's one of my favorite movies of all time i know okay uh, jesse why the apartment so i'm from new york and i always love new york uh, christmas movies and new like new york holiday movies but i also love unconventional new york holiday movies when i really feel like it's a you know subgenre we don't talk about a lot as, like Eyes Wide Shut and other things like that. And this one in particular, uh, I'm in Los Angeles. I can't really go home because of the pandemic. So like to get that real sort of classic New York holiday season where there's a lot of snow on the ground, uh, especially their uh, atmosphere of like, you know, one of the things I love about this movie is that they're, they really cover the days in between like Christmas and New Year's. So like that sense of like, you know, you have time off, but you don't really know what you're doing, but you're in this great city and there's a really cool, you know, uh, there's some cold wind outside and you've got some friends in. I just really enjoy the atmosphere of it. And I wanted to experience that again. Yeah, I uh, wrote a piece about this movie. I don't know, time has no meaning anymore. It might've been earlier this year. I think it was. Um, and it was one of my favorite things I've ever written just because I love this movie so much. Um, it's funny. It makes you wanna just curl up in a ball and cry at some points um yeah which is it your favorite billy wilder is it just one of them great question i've seen like pretty much all of his movies from the 50s and a lot of them after i think it's one of my definitely like top five maybe top three but i love it so much because it was a passion project of his uh he actually came up with the idea in the late 40s billy wilder went to go see a movie called brief encounter and there's a very quick scene where the two couples who are cheating on their spouses go into this room and the female lead says, oh, uh, whose apartment is this? And the male lead says, oh, it's just a friend of mine. He's loaning me his place. And the guy shows up for like five seconds later. And normally you'd see that movie and just forget about that character. But Billy Wilder being Billy Wilder, he was like, who's that guy? What's he doing? Why is he doing this? And he went home and he wrote down a little uh, idea that was basically, I think, 
man who snuggles into a bed that's been left warm by the two lovers who he's rented his room to. And then he just sits on it and like refines it in his head for like 11 years, maybe 12. So you could tell like by watching, it's a very passion that Patrick he was passionate about and seeing him being able to be like, hey, here's an idea I came up with like 20, 10, 12 years ago. And like to see him realize it in the way that he does is great. Plus like I'm a huge Billy Wilder fan and I love his ability to change tones and genres and just way he can go from a single scene to being really funny, to being really sad, to being really moving where you're crying because you're, you're sad and then you're happy. Like the way he manipulates your emotions is something I really vibe with. And I think he does quite skillfully in this movie. Well, and the performers get to show so much range. Um, it's just, yeah, I love Shirley MacLaine. She's a treasure. It's uh, just forever crush. On Shirley MacLaine, uh, forever crush on Jack Lemmon, our jitteriest actor, our most <laughs> nervous actor. Uh, do you, Jesse? Do you think that uh, that his ability to shift so effortlessly like lends to the fact that like Billy Wilder movies are like very funny and you know have usually happy endings, but they're also pretty cynical about relationships between men and women. <laughs> like, as in, I don't even know, sometimes I wonder if Billy Wilder even likes the fact that people get married or get together in any capacity. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, just to jump in real quick. Um, so there's this uh, book of interviews that Cameron Crowe did with Billy Wilder called Conversations with Wilder. It's fantastic. Um, and Cameron Crowe brought up the fact that people think that Wilder's this huge cynic and just hates everything. And he was like, I don't get it. Interesting. So, <laughs> I, he didn't think of himself as a cynic. Uh, well, one thing about him that I always find interesting is that uh, a lot of his movies involve infidelity and people, men being not so great to women, but always making up for it, or very complicated relationships between men and women. But his second wife, Audrey Young, was the love of his life. And if you read the book that Mikhail was talking about, Conversations with Wilder, which is really amazing, like he, you, the love that he feels for this woman is really inspiring and like that love that he had for I feel like carries into this movie where like no matter how horrible things get no matter how mean they get no matter how tragic they get there's just this great core of sweetness where you can tell that the Jack Lemmon's character uh, Bud loves Miss Kubelik the Shirley MacLaine character and like even though he's doing all this cynicism on the outside there's like this sweet romantic core at the inside that I feel like really keeps it uh, together. I heard this quote uh that he said, and I, I can't remember it exactly, but it was something like, uh, he said, if you if you let the audience add two things together, they'll love you for it. Like, don't spell it out for them. I think he was mainly talking about like, you know, sexuality in movies, but he said that was something that he learned from, from Ernst Lubitsch, uh, the guy who directed like Trouble in Paradise, who was like his hero. I always thought that was kind of cool. Oh yeah, uh, to uh, go back, and uh, he loved Lubitsch so much, there's this fact about him I've always loved that when he and I.L. Diamond, who wrote this movie together, would go to their office, I think it may have just been Billy's office, but it might've been their joint one. There was a sign over the door that just said, how would Lubitsch do it? <laughs> Which that. is not a bad thing to stick by, you know? No, although, Hell oh, yeah. in Paradise Ooh. is not a subtle film, I would say. <laughs> I recently yeah, rewatched Trouble in Paradise and I was like, this is just like the best thing ever. <laughs> oh yeah. Such a great movie. So I uh, guess we are moving on to the last film of the evening, uh, my choice. 
It is 1949's Holiday Affair. When two romantic go-getting guys are in love with a hard-to-get girl, the wedding march is sure going to be paced by the battle hymn of the Republic. I like them loose. And what in the... Oh, now. Have a wife. Connie, I've loved you for a long time. Connie, I think Carl is just about one of the nicest fellows I could ever hope to meet. But I think you ought to marry me. You know a man named Steve Mason? What's the matter? Did something happen to him? He's down at the precinct in a lot of trouble. He claims he might be able to clear it up. The romantic relationships of the parties involved have nothing to do with this case. You've got nothing but the weakest kind of circumstantial evidence. What's he got to do with this, anyway? He's my attorney. Well, he's my fiancé. We're to be married New Year's Day. And what were you doing in the park with this guy, 8 o'clock Christmas morning? are just <laughs> so interesting <laughs> and fun um so i uh it was really hard i'm sure all of you agree it was really hard to pick a movie for this especially when you know that you're going to be doing a virtual event on it and it's going to be recorded forever and yeah so uh i decided to narrow my choices down by going uh with a holiday movie because that's what I do every time we have a roundup in December I usually pick a holiday movie because as you can tell I kind of like Christmas a lot <laughs> um, so, uh, so this is one of the movies I have to watch every year I love it so much um, the probably like the most famous thing about it uh, is Robert Mitchum's casting he uh, was arrested for uh, possession of marijuana and spent two months on a prison farm. Um, and so he was convinced like his marriage was over, his career was over, like it was all done for. Um, but his marriage was fine and he actually became more popular than ever because he already had this bad boy image. So of course getting arrested just fits right into that. Um, but his studio RKO was still um, a little concerned because obviously not everybody loved the fact that he was caught with marijuana. <laughs> so they put him in this nice, like, feel-good Christmas rom-com. Um, and it's really funny if you look at some of the uh, marketing that RKO did for this movie because, um, you know, Mitchum was known as the, like, film noir actor. He had done, like, Out of the Past just two years ago and all that. Um, so some of the marketing for this movie is, like, trying to make it look like a film noir which makes no sense, <laughs> but it's hilarious. Um, but 
Holiday Affair is one of my favorite uh, Robert Mitchum performances uh, because, you know, he has this kind of like on-screen and off-screen persona and this kind of rebel figure who's kind of crazy and does whatever he wants and um, which he still like demonstrates in Holiday Affair, but it's softened by like the script's romanticism and the humor and he just ends up being really adorable, which is fun. Um, and then the love triangle in the film uh, is really interesting because, I mean, it's obvious that Mitchum and Janet Lee are going to end up together. That's not a spoiler. I think you kind of know that's going to happen. Um, but the film like doesn't try to vilify uh, Lee's fiance, who's played by Wendell Corey, uh, who we probably only know now from Rear Window. Uh, but he gives, Wendell Corey gives this great performance and he actually has a speech towards the end of the film that um, I, I don't want to spoil too much, but it's very reminiscent of like Bill Pullman at the end of Sleepless in Seattle. Um, so he's got layers to him. Um, and then you just have this adorable little child actor, Gordon Giebert, uh, who plays Janet Lee's son and he's they just, they're very believable as a mother and son and it's very cute. Um, and he's, his character is sweet and bratty and precocious and like exactly what you'd expect from a six-year-old. Um, and it's just a, it's a really grounded film with relatable characters and um, the trailer doesn't really talk about it, but um, Janet Lee's character is a war widow, and so she's still grieving the loss of her husband who was killed in World War II. Um, and so she's always trying to compare uh, her son to her husband and trying to make sure everything stays status quo. And she's been seeing Wendell Corey for two years, but won't commit to marriage because she's still um, you know, grieving her husband. Um, so this film really deals with like loss and how do you honor someone's memory without becoming, you know, smothered by it? And how do you move on with your life? While also just being really cute and sweet. <laughs> um, the performance, I, performances across the board are perfect. And I found out a mind-blowing thing last night. Apparently, when they were casting this movie, they were uh, talking about casting Jimmy Stewart Teresa Wright and Montgomery Clift. Huh. So Jimmy what? Stewart would be the like boring fiance and Montgomery Maybe. would be the new bad boy? Possibly. I couldn't find like what roles they those two were assigned to, but it's just that would have been wild. But <laughs> I think what we got is really great. Um, it was a box office bomb when it came out. Oh. Um, but like over the years, it's been on TV. So that's how it's kind of gained um, fans and TCM shows it multiple times every December. Mm -hmm. um, but I still feel like it's a little obscure. And so that's why I wanted to talk about it. Um, have any of you guys like seen it or heard of it? I watched it just for this. I hadn't heard of it before, um, but it was on HBO Max. So I was like, oh, I'll just watch this. It was yeah. really fun. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Walter. I, I, cause that immediately, like he came to mind when I was watching the film, like the, from Sleepless in Seattle, the Bill Pullman character. Do you know if Sleepless in Seattle is potentially like referencing this film? I wondered about that too, because 
I'm not sure. And I think I, I read somewhere that Bill Pullman was the one who came up with that. Okay. So maybe he told Nora Ephron that he wanted, he didn't want Walter to be like, just (laughs) ran over at the end of the movie, which, (laughs) um, There's that scene when the two men meet for the first time and they're like trying to have small talk and it's just like they're both like right right and it's such a genius small talk scene that shows like their rivalry but they're so like polite about it. Yeah the director the director is really not someone uh, a lot of people are familiar with his name is Don Hartman he actually has a cameo at the beginning of the film uh when janet lee goes into a phone booth uh he apparently he's the guy coming out of the phone booth um but he did a lot of the uh bob hope and bing crosby road movies and he was best friends with danny Kay, working with him a lot so he like really knew his comedy chops and i think that shows in the movie is there any reason as someone who's like so entrenched in old hollywood i don't know if you get into like the box office minutia of it all but like is there any particular reason why this wasn't like a hit when it came out or at least like did performed decently and kind of has now lost the time is there any reason for that yeah I'm not sure I don't know if it's because they just didn't know how to market it with Robert Mitchum in the lead and it seems crazy to say that now because if you watch the film I mean he's wonderful he's just fits right in um I don't I don't think it had anything to do with his arrest because his other movies were going on gangbusters. I mean, they were rushing him into movies to capitalize on the publicity. So uh, this was the first time I've seen this movie. I saw it on HBO Max and I really liked Robert Mitchum's performance. It was also very interesting to see because the role I associated the most with is his uh, villainous role from The Night of the Hunter. I was wondering if this was the first Robert Mitchum movie you'd seen and if not, uh, what was your, how did his uh, star persona influence uh, your viewing of the movie? You know, I can't remember what the first Mitchell movie is. I know, I remember Night of the Hunter scared the crap out of me though. <laughs> it might've been out of the past. Um, but, you know, I, I had read to bring it back to Shirley MacLaine. She had um, an affair with Robert Mitchum that she wrote about in her autobiography. And he was a really complicated, he loved poetry. He was very quiet. So there was like this really interesting side to him that um, I think you can kind of see in Holiday Affair. So it's it's nice. Seems like this is one of those movies that I haven't seen it yet, but I it seems like it's getting more and more uh, fans each year. Like I remember, I, I think I first heard about it in like around the holidays in 2018. And mm-hmm. does that seem like right to you, Michaela? Like it's kind of building its rep these days. Yeah, I think like in the classic film community, it's definitely like something that people know. So yeah, I'm curious if people outside of the community, which sounds very scary, <laughs> if people who aren't familiar with classic films like know it as well. I almost wonder if it would benefit from the It's a Wonderful Life treatment of it if it aired on on like broadcast television and not cable like right you know, whereas like it, it seems like it's similar to it's a wonderful life in the sense that like it wasn't a huge hit when it came out but it became a classic because it just kept playing on tv all the time and people just watched it yeah. every year so i wonder if it could even benefit from that well I, i'm kind of curious if it being so easily available on a big streaming platform might help because there's a lot of classic 
Christmas movies that aren't available. They're kind of harder to find now that the world is transitioning more towards streaming away from cable. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, like if you don't own the DVD, it can be kind of tricky to find some of your holiday favorites. So I wonder if that won't make it a little bit more popular because it is one of the available holiday streaming films. Yeah, and it was just released, I think, by Warner Archive uh, this year on Blu-ray. So mm-hmm. that's a nice step in the right direction. <laughs> yeah. All right, so I think with that, we are ready for the Q&A portion of this evening. So Alyssa, if you wanna jump back in here. Um, yeah, we have some awesome questions um, that have come in and it seems like we have at least one for each of you. So I'm gonna go through one for each of you and then hopefully we'll have time for more at the end of that. Uh, so I'm gonna start with one for David. Amanda asks, why do you think Strange Days has been overlooked more often when Catherine Bigelow's other films are more renowned? Uh, thank you, Amanda. Uh, I I think this has uh, been overlooked largely because one, it was just a big box office bomb when it came out. No one went no one saw the movie I, I i would suspect well i didn't suspect i mean i've read reviews from the time with the exception of like roger ebert everyone thought this movie was like kind of too dark and exploitative at like which i don't think it's an exploitation movie in the least i actually think it's just more asking tough questions um i just think it kind of rubbed people the wrong way i think at that time people kind of wanted their like gritty sci-fi movies to kind of be also not challenging in any way at you know movies like the net and lawnmower man and virtuosity like movies that have like that same patina but don't necessarily aren't really asking any tough questions but you know also uh it just doesn't seem like it was a movie made for like a wide audience to begin with i mean she got like 50 million dollars to make it which is like great in 1995 money and i think her new movies are more successful simply because they're more Oscar uh, populist friendly on a cynic on the cynical side of it. I think it's easier to sell movies about the military as, as a thing than it is to like sell movies about how the LA police are bad. So that that's like my short answer. All right. Uh, the next question is for Laura and this is actually not about your pick. It's something else. So I'm going to preface it. Um, Laura makes fantastic video essays that are available on our YouTube channel. So if you have not checked them out before, you definitely should. Uh, So the question is, what is your process when you create your video essays? Um, Well, first I I pitch Michaela very vague topics. (laughs) And then she she kind of, um, so like for um, the most recent one, I, I can say the topic, right? It's not a secret. Yeah, okay. Okay. The next one is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, so I I pitched Michaela. I was like something on Celine Siama. I don't know, maybe something about her whole, you know, filmography or maybe just something about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And then um, then I, um, I, I kind of do a research process where like I watch the film or films collect, um, you know, the artifacts, I guess, that I'm going to use and do a ton of research. I probably spend the greater portion of a month, because we do about one post a month, just doing research. And that's for any post. I like just do research, research, research. And I think it's because I did a PhD. I just can't stop doing research. Um, And then, um, 
yeah, then I like when the idea kind of clicks for me, I'm like, I don't know, like something always emerges no matter what I pitch. There's always something interesting to say about a film, I think. Um, and then I don't know, then I write a script or start piecing it together, depending on whether I want to do narration. And um, I'm not sure what else to say about it. I'm usually a day late. It always takes longer than I expect, even though I've done about 25 or 30 now. I'm always, I don't know, continually surprised by how long encoding files and things like that take. So I'm, I feel like every single, not this time, actually, you know, the only reason this post wasn't late, Michaela, is because I thought it was due on the 13th. And then when I discovered I had an extra day, I was like, yes. So that's the <laughs> only reason it was on time. Otherwise it would have, you would have gotten it today. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> awesome. All right. The next one is for Jack. Uh, what would you say is Romer's most underrated film and why? This is a pretty easy question for me because Romer has a really underrated uh, gem called The Four Adventures of Raynette and Mirabelle uh, from 1987. And it's about one girl from the city and one girl from the country and they meet and they have like, they end up just staying with each other for a summer. And it's one of those movies that's like four mini movies. It's like four mini shorts that are like disconnected. Uh, it almost feels like Romer's like idea for a sitcom pilot because it's just like kind of them getting into like they're so different these two these two young women and like they get into arguments and they have misadventures um that one's actually on hoopla um any of you have hoopla great all right next jesse what other Billy Wilder films do you think, or do you enjoy, and what would you recommend and why? Uh, well, if I uh, were to talk about all the Billy Wilder movies that I would enjoy and recommend to people, we'd be here for another two, three hours easy. <laughs> do it, let's do it. Let's do it, yeah, I got nothing yeah. to do tonight. Billy Wilder show. So I'm just gonna recommend two that are a little more underappreciated that I really enjoy. Uh, the first one is Stalag 17, uh, which was actually kind of sort of the inspiration for Hogan's Heroes, because it's about these uh, prisoners, uh, POWs in uh, World War II era, uh, prisoner of war camp in Germany uh, during World War II. And uh, it's very funny, but it's also very serious. And uh, William Holden is in it. He plays Sefton who may be collaborating with the Germans, but uh, may not be. And he's so good in this role. He won an Oscar for it. And he gave one of the shortest Oscar speeches ever because he didn't think he was going to win. So that movie is another, a lot like The Apartment. Stalag 17 is great at balancing tones because it could be funny and then it's scary and then it's sad and then it's like uplifting and triumphant. So I'd really recommend that one if you can look at, uh, find it. Uh, but the other one I'd recommend is called One, Two, Three. It's the movie that Billy Wilder made right after The Apartment. And there's this sort of myth that I think is totally false that The Apartment's his last great film. For me, I haven't seen a lot of his later movies, but I'd put the last masterpiece as one, two, three. Uh, Jim, James Cagney is a Coca-Cola executive in West Berlin, and he's in charge of uh, making sure his boss's daughter has a good time, but she ends up running off with an East German communist and he ends up having to go through all these crazy adventures to make get them back to get her back into West Berlin and uh, make sure her father doesn't fire him. It's really funny. It's really fast paced, and it has a little bit of like some good social commentary and like changing tones. But 
the reality is just very zany and very funny and really, really fast. And it's just an incredible film. All right. And next for Michaela, what other classic films would you recommend for the holidays? Uh, uh, there's so many. Um, well, I, my last post uh, was about a few of those. So um, there's that. I mean, Christmas in Connecticut, which I talked about, is one of my favorites. It's really delightful. Um, let's see what else? I mean, there's, there's the usual suspects. It's Wonderful Life incredible uh white christmas um holiday inn is one of my absolute favorites um and miracle on 34th street obviously what else uh oh i like to watch um every new year's eve i give i do a thin man marathon uh, because the first one is uh on christmas and then after the thin man the second movie is uh New Year's Eve. So I like to just start that. And then I try to time it. So when they celebrate New Year's Eve and after the Thin Man, it's also New Year's Eve here. It's also midnight here. Um, Cause I'm a dork and that's what I do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's so many great Christmas. And I'm actually surprised cause this year at TCM, uh, which I worship obviously is showing a lot of like interesting um, Christmas movies that I hadn't seen before. Um, so I'm really, I've got my DVR ready for so, like there's um, We're No Angels with uh, Humphrey Bogart and Peter Ustinoff and Aldo Ray that I've heard a lot of great things about. Um, so yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> okay, I have another one for Michaela and then I have some for everyone. Uh, so Mitch agrees that the old film trailers are so cool and asks if you think you would ever do a presentation or post about old Hollywood trailers. Oh, I never thought about it, but that would be interesting because there's, there's a lot of like misrepresentation and then there's also just a lot of like trying to really build these movies up and it, it feels kind of ridiculous. Um, Hmm, that would be an interesting time. that would require so much research but it yeah it would be interesting it's something to think about you should do it <laughs> i think the yeah, video essay it. person should do it <laughs> <laughs> but i'm not the expert on classical hollywood cinema you could make a video essay anyone can hmm. would you ever present would you ever do it as a live presentation in the aftertimes you're asking the person who has stage fright if they <laughs> <didn't do that. laughs> you know what I'm for tonight, David. <laughs> okay, um, I have a few for everyone. So um, what process did each of you go through um, both to, to pick your films for tonight and just for the monthly roundup in general? How do you land on your final pick? I'll just go first. Uh, I picked this one just because I've been thinking about it since uh, the riots uh, have been happening across the country. I also just think about this movie a lot in general. And like I said, it's a New Year's Eve movie. And so I just thought it was interesting. Uh, I'll abstain from the other part of the question because I've actually been an absent person from the monthly movie roundup for many months. So on to the next person. Um. I, I keep a, a viewing journal. Um, I'm a big nerd as well. I keep a reading journal and a viewing journal. And so I just kind of like 
flip through and I don't write about every single film I watch, but anything I watch that is, um, I don't know, strikes a thought, I write a few paragraphs about. And so I just kind of flip through to see what looks like something I might want to elaborate on in a paragraph or two. And um, that's, that's what I pick. Um, I have also been absent in the monthly movie roundup though, be for the pandemic times. I, I think like a lot of people, uh, work has been a little insane and I've had less time for the blog this past year than I wish I, than, than I would like. It happens. Yeah. I forgive you both. <laughs> <laughs> um, Maybe I'll come back. You're not invited back. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, I like all of you guys, I, uh, I think about movies constantly, like during the day and stuff. So I usually just like write about whatever I've been thinking about the most. Um, Cause that I feel like it's usually the easiest to write about or like in this case, talk about. And right now I'm on a huge rumor kick. So just thinking about that guy and wanted to talk about him. For me, uh, more often than not, uh, I view the monthly movie roundup as a way to express uh, what I'm feeling about what's happening in the world. Uh, a few months ago during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, uh, there was a lot of debate and talk about uh, abortion and reproductive health and uh, women's autonomy over their own bodies. And because I was thinking about that so much, I watched a movie called uh, One Sings the Other Doesn't, an Agnes Varda film that's very much about all of those issues and it does so in a really cool way. It's also a diegetic musical, so there's a lot of great songs in it. So that was why I do that. And most of the time, my uh, monthly movie roundups are political, but for this one, it's the end of the year and I felt like doing something festive, so I uh, picked the apartment. Yeah, and like Laura, I uh, have a journal that I um, write down every time I watch a new movie and my thoughts on it, a new to me movie. Um, so I usually go back through that because I can't remember what I've watched and kind of try and think, well, what stood out to me the most or what do I think is the most underrated and I really want to get some eyeballs on it. Um, each of you, what would you say is your favorite thing or one of your favorite things that you've written for the A Place for Film blog? Uh, that's really tough because like I learned how to write because of the A Place for Film blog. So Aww. my writing kept evolving. Um, uh, I really, I'll, I'll just go with the one I think is probably the most popular thing I've written on the blog, which is my In the Mood for Love mm. piece because I was so nervous about writing that because that is like a um, holy text to me that movie and so I remember I watched that movie four times before I even put well four more times I'd already seen it many times before I even put words to paper at that point and I really do think the work it's one of those rare things I feel like the work that I actually put into it actually comes through and I actually think is very good hmm. that's a good one you guys should read it if you have not already um, my favorite, I, I, this is a very early piece. Um, I wrote um, a piece on Jean Dielman. Um, I had had the opportunity to project it way, way back many, many years ago when I was a grad student. Um, I was a IU Cinema projectionist. And um, it's a, I think a 10 or 11 reel film. And experiencing that film in reels was really fascinating. And uh, then when the blog started, um, it kind of inspired a post based on that idea of real one, real two. So Jean does this in real one, Jean does this in real two. And it's not exactly structured that way, but, and then interwoven is um, 
just history of um, women's reproductive rights and prostitution in France and Belgium. So um, there's, it's just, it's kind of um, a little bit avant-garde in structure, but um, it, I think, brings up some counterpoints of the social context of the film. So I really, it was one of my favorite pieces that I've written. That is, that is such a great film. Um, I've, I've always been happy with the piece that I wrote on Vincent Minnelli's Brigadoon, mm. in which I argued that it's like an extended delirious metaphor for movie going. Um, I love that movie, so. Uh, mine is, uh, was about this great movie uh, called Z that I saw in high school and I loved. And uh, we were going to show it at the IU Cinema as a part of our president series about uh, report journalism and reporting on conflict zones. And I'm a huge fan of Jean-Louis Trintignant, who uh, just celebrated his 90th birthday. And he gives this great performance where, like, the only way I could describe him is he's like a bureaucratic badass, where, like, he's really just cleaning up this, like, town and really, like, doing these great investigations. And the piece was all about that. And I was really watching it with an eye for this really controlled, like, awesome, like fun, triumphant performance. And uh, I actually got to, on the strength of that piece, I got to introduce the film when they showed it at the IU Cinema. So I associate the piece, which I already enjoyed with seeing it on the big screen for the first time. And it was a 35 millimeter projection. It was just a really great time. So I think that's probably my favorite. Uh, I think I have two. Uh, so one, I wrote um, a, an article about um, some of my favorite underrated dancers from classic Hollywood. Uh, so like Bobby Van, Tommy Rawl, who we sadly lost this year. Um, Eleanor Powell, who is incredible. Um, and so I wrote that thinking, this is so niche, like nobody's gonna read this. Um, but I had somebody, when we showed, um, there's no business like show business. Uh, I think last year, uh, I had an audience member come up to me afterwards because I was um, ushering and she, and I introduced the film and she was just telling me how much she loved it and how she uh, wrote a letter to Donald O'Connor when she was little and he like sent back a photograph or a signed picture and it was so sweet. Um, so that was really nice. And then I did um, an interview by email with Victoria Price, who is Vic Vincent Price's daughter. Uh, that was amazing, and I still think about that all the time. <laughs> all right, so in a similar vein, um, is there an article or a video essay that you've thought about but haven't gotten the chance to write or make yet? Uh, I dance around the idea of writing something, and by something, I mean a book, but at least something about the Wachowski sisters constantly but I have too many thoughts, which is why it should just be a book. <laughs> but so, like either a career retrospective or what, or something about what I think is their probably their most underrated film, which is Speed Racer. But I, I feel like that's something I constantly keep in a notebook that I'll come back to someday. Hmm. I, I feel like I have a running list of things and I don't know, like, well, we, we pitch things usually in, in the normal times, we pitch things at the beginning of, each semester. <laughs> this semester has been a little bit different because um, the world is different. Um, but I, one day I really want to do something on like um, universal monsters and the idea of post-humanism. Um, 
I, I feel like maybe it, it, it feels like it's going to be big and I need to do a lot of research, but I just, um, I don't know, universal monsters are kind of fascinating in their human, not human state and the way they're presented. I'd like to do more work on silent cinema. Um, I've done a lot of things for the vlog on classical Hollywood. So now I'm just going to like recede even more deeply into the past. <laughs> um, no, but I also want to do more collaborative stuff because I like the idea of like doing dialogues and, and interviews as well. So uh, when I, during my first visit to IU, uh, Roger Corman was on campus and the cinema was honoring him and they did this really cool programming thing where they would do double features of great American directors who had started with Corman. And the first movie would be like one of their big masterpieces, like for Scorsese, it was Raging Bull. And then the movie right after it was Boxcar Bertha. So like it would be one of their later masterpieces, a quickie that they shot for Corman or like a B-movie exploitation film that they shot for Corman. So I'd love to do a piece uh, taking one of those directors and taking two of their films, one for Corman, one uh, later on that was more uh, auteur in their voice or a little more uh, mainstream. I'd love to put them in conversation and uh, see what it says about the director. Mm, it sounds interesting. Yeah, Thank you. I'd read that. Thank you, David. Yeah, all right, you know. those all sound good. Um, there's one, it's not my piece. It's, uh, it's one that I'm still kind of mourning. Um, so last semester when we were gonna be showing uh, Leave Her to Heaven, which is an amazing Gene Tierney film, uh, Jack was going to write a post, uh, yeah, <laughs> with uh, <laughs> with our, one of our projectionists, Mary Figueroa, and I was so excited for that. And then it just all fell through. So I still have my fingers crossed for that one someday. Um, hopefully someday. But, yeah, hopefully. Um, but for me personally, I don't know, cause I always try to, I try to find some way to sneak what I want on the blog. <laughs> so if I want to write about Esther Williams who, I'm obsessed with. Um, I kind of try to figure out a way I can do it. Usually during the summer, because during the summer we have more leeway to pick kind of uh, topics that aren't related to upcoming cinema programming since uh, the cinema's dark for part of the summer. Um, so I don't know. Speaking of Lever to Heaven, I loved your Gene Tierney piece. Well, thank yeah, you. that was wonderful. That ruled. Good. Thanks. That was a lot of fun to write. She's amazing. Well, I hope to see all of those on A Place for Film sometime soon. Um, so I have one more question for you guys, and then I'll leave it to you for final comments and we'll wrap up. Um, so if you had the opportunity uh, to program a film or a series for IU Cinema when we can finally welcome patrons back again, what would you do? I used to drive a bus for IU or kind of still do. That's up in the air. And so all I do is think about different film series I would program if given the opportunity. And it's too big. So I'll just go with the most recent one I had, not the like definitive one I would actually program. And I just have this idea about uh, sports movies, just off the beaten path sports movies. So the idea being that I would kind of want to show the movie Tin Cup starring Kevin Costner. I'd want to show Speed Racer by the Wachowski sisters. And I would like to show Creed as opposed to Rocky. 
for the the boxing movie but that's too big of a question i i i don't i don't know what would be the best uh thing to program if the cinema asked me to do if they gave me a whole film series that would be dangerous if they gave you a whole film series (laughs) yeah laura um yeah i i think um this is tough um it's it's hard to think of things that haven't already been programmed um one, one thing i think i would really enjoy seeing on the cinema screen would be um the brothers quay shorts i um i wrote my master's thesis on them and um for the most part haven't really seen their films in good projection i, I did get to go to a retrospective of their films but the prints were not um some of them were super high quality and it was um i don't know the the screening venue the projector was maybe a little dim um and so i, I wasn't as happy with the the quality of um the screening and it, it was a, a little disappointing um and so i think i would like another chance at seeing them on the big screen um, because they're such um textural films and the sound is so um the sound design is so lovely in them um, that I think they would really benefit from being on the cinema screen. Oh, I've always wanted to see Jacques Tati's playtime on the big screen because like I've just heard that it's like the ultimate big screen movie. Um, but also my probably real answer is like a John Ford movie because he's my favorite <laughs> filmmaker. And so yeah, probably like one of those beautiful old Fords, like How Green Was My Valley, or She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, preferably. That was screened. Like, 35 millimeter. Yeah. yeah. Playtime was also screened too. Yeah. She Wore a li- Yellow Ribbon was absolutely gorgeous. It was just like the color was magnificent. Tell me this. You guys are breaking Jack's heart. Sorry, <laughs> Jack. It, it was many was years ago, I think. I can't remember what year it screened, but I feel like I was maybe still a student when I went. Yeah, I moved to Bloomington in 2016. So yeah. if, it, if, if it had happened when I was there, I would have been there. I think it had to have been tw- before 2014 because I went to IU in 2014. And if it was playing while I was on campus, I would have been there. And so uh, that's, my, that's my pick for the most beautiful Technicolor movie is She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. Oh, yeah. Beautiful film. Uh, for me, uh, if I was had to pick a film, I think uh, if you know me, the answer is pretty obvious to be Paddington 2. Uh. <laughs> so warm and sweet and really like on the big screen, the colors really pop and are extra vibrant. But if I was uh, talking about a series, uh, we've had a lot of losses this year, but uh, one particular one in the film community that hurts is uh, the death of Lynn Shelton. Uh, she was a great filmmaker, great independent director. If and you talk to anyone who met her, she was the loveliest person you'd ever meet, really kind and great. And you can see that in her film. So if I was doing a series, I would do it all Lynn Shelton films. So stuff like, you know, Your Sister's Sister, which is the first one I saw, and Laggies, which is really underrated and really fun. Definitely sort of uh, Truth, which was her last film. But I'd also make sure to do a night that was just like the highlights of her TV work. So like you get her episode of Mad Men, you get like a bunch of the episodes of Love she did. And I'd really program them so like they'd all go together because she really, she could just do it all. And to like see her TV work as being on par with her features, uh, I think would be really cool. I can tell we've all thought of this. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I actually have a running list on my phone. Of, uh, <laughs> just in case I ever get picked for staff selects again, or, you know, Brittany, our interim director is like, okay, Michaela, tell me your ideas. 
so I actually uh, had this idea <laughs> this is, uh, for a series that's kind of like 60s crime capers. Uh, so like the Pink Panther, um, How Steel Million with Audrey Hepburn, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, Gambit, which is a really uh, underrated movie with Michael Caine and Shirley MacLaine. I think Shirley MacLaine is like the running thread throughout this whole thing, <laughs> which I'm not mad at. Um, yeah, I've, uh, yeah, if I could just do a film, I mean, maybe Sunday in New York, which is a Jane Fonda movie uh, with Rod Taylor. And it is, uh, it's one of my absolute favorites. It's so funny and it's so romantic and it's totally 60s and uh, it's just really great. So that'd be fun to see on the big screen. All right, well, those are all the questions that um, I have. So um, any final comments, anyone? Uh, yeah. Please uh, check out the A Place for Film podcast. Um, everyone who was on here tonight, including the person who just asked this question, will be on uh, <laughs> on an upcoming episode. It's uh, we I've put a lot of work into it. I think it's a great uh, thing to listen to. Um, please follow me on Twitter at Samurai Flicks. And I'd also like to amend my answer as far as a film series that it would be uh, nothing but films uh, starring Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung. So, <laughs> Laura? Oh, do we all have to have, I don't know if I have one. Oh, let's oh, say you don't have to have one. <laughs> yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I think I've said everything I want to say. Thanks. Yeah. I had a great time. <laughs> uh, so you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Jesse Pasternak. Uh, you can also listen to the podcast or Knack, a podcast that I do with my older brother, Sam. Our next episode actually uh, is an interview with a classmate of mine from IU. So uh, we talk about uh, some IU stuff and uh, in general, just uh, hope you all have a happy holidays and uh, this was really fun to do together. See, Jesse, you were smart. You plugged yourself. Okay, you can follow me at Dual Projection on Twitter and Instagram. There you go. You can uh, follow me on Letterboxd at Jackie Boy Mill Mill and you can check out the new volume that I just put out on Westerns, writing the Dusty Trail, which Michaela and Laura are also in. Wait, we can plug Letterboxd. Uh, follow me at Robert Dolphy. I write a bunch of dumb stuff. Come and look at those <laughs> reviews. They're very good. All right. Well, uh, I just want to say, you know, thank you to everyone who watched. Um, if you haven't subscribed yet to the blog, please do. Uh, <laughs> because all of us put uh, so much thoughts and heart into it. And it's been uh, a real joy to be the editor for these uh, three lovely people. I'm about to end this man's whole career. Plus David. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm dying. Cause I have been killed. <laughs> oh, I've been destroyed. I'm never gonna recover. You just gotta daggle a criterion over here. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, we make I'm this back. annual tradition. Y'all, yes. Can we just do this That's at least so once a year? I would love that. Theme next year. Good idea. So no one can quit writing for the blog. Yeah. <laughs> All contractually obligated. Yes. <laughs> Okay, well, hopefully we will see you all back here next year, same time, same place for another December monthly movie roundup. 
Um, on that note, thank you all, Michaela, David, Jack, Jesse, and Laura for a fantastic discussion and for, of course, the thoughtfulness and love of cinema that you bring to a place for film every week. Um, I also want to thank the entire IU Cinema team, particularly Brittany, Jessica, Elena, Mary, Elizabeth, and Ava, who have all worked behind the scenes to make this event possible. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, this is our last interactive event of the year, um, but you can join us again in our virtual screening room on January 13th, 2021, as we celebrate IU Cinema's 10-year anniversary. We'll share our favorite IU Cinema memories and excerpts from our upcoming book, along with some surprises along the way. Until then, be sure to explore the extraordinary seven film series, World of Long Car Way, streaming now through January 20th. Um, and Thomas Venterberg's Another Round streaming through this Friday. You can get your virtual tickets to World of Long Carway and Another Round on cinema.indiana.edu. So to everyone who tuned in, thank you once again for being with us. Be well, be kind to yourselves and others. Happy holidays, and we'll see you in January. Have a great night.